Mays cannibalized Patti LaBelle's band. So Mays had got a personnel change and they needed three new members. So the first guy they took was Ron Smith, who was Patti LaBelle's gu guitarist. And the second guy they, they um, got was Billy Johnson, who was Patti's drummer, who, who also played with Dexter Wansell. And then um, they needed a keyboard player, and so they recommended me. Because he wanted guys from Philadelphia because the, the band was from Philly. So he wanted people with the with the Philly sensibility. And um, so they recommended me, and so um, I took the gig with Mace. And that was 80 or 79? It was. It was a very end of 79 like almost new year's so i went out in january to oakland and um and started with them well what were your first impressions of uh, frankie beverly um you know i thought that Maze's music was a little primitive because you know i i had been doing like the disco thing, I was playing disco section sessions, and I was really into like uh, Quincy Jones and the Earth, Wind and Fire at the time, which was very sophisticated. So, High precision, yeah. Yeah, I was really into that. And Maze was kind of like down homey. And actually Maze reminded me quite a lot of war, mm -hmm. the similarities. And also they had had trouble getting a great sound on the recordings. So it it sounded to me like, except for Joy and Pain, like Joy and Pain was a big step up from their previous albums. And Joy and Pain was really, I thought it was really good. And I was comparing it, that to, this sounds like Marvin Gaye. But it turns out Marvin Gaye discovered Maze. Did you know that? No. Yeah. No. Marvin Gaye um, um, the band's friend was the sister of Marvin Gaye's wife. And um, so she had Marvin come up and listen to them in a club in San Francisco. And Marvin took them to Capitol and got them signed with Larkin Arnold. Why, and why then, did we take them to Motown? Uh, maybe because um, that was maybe not the greatest move. You know, when you, you look at, when you're on the outside, you'll see that, okay, this is happening, that's happening. But I think behind the scenes, it's, it's a lot different. And I think that probably um, the relationship, he probably knew that Mays was right for, for Capital. So I don't know. I'm, I'm just a keyboard player, you know. Um, so, you know, four, three, four albums later, I joined the band on, on Joy and Pain. And then Joy and Pain became a hit. And so we went on tour, and um, that that was the um, the most luxurious treatment I had um, experienced to date. Being oh, how so? Well, we had our own limos, we had valets, um, we had security. Um, we were pampered. Um, the money exponentially exploded from what I'd been making before. Um, we had custom clothes made, um, bonuses. Was that management or Capitol Records or? No, that was Frankie. Frankie. Yeah. Frankie was generous with the band like that. Well, I mean, they were always renowned for 
giving a great live show. Yes. And Mays, um, they had a cult following. And so everywhere we played was always sold out. And they would, uh, they would piggyback bands, bands that were just starting out. The promoters would put them in as the opening act for exposure because Maze was so popular. So tons of groups that, that, you, that we all know got their first tours opening for Maze. So it was it was very exciting, and then um, in November of that year, we recorded live in New Orleans, which became one of the best. A lot of people say that it's one of the best live albums, and uh, we we recorded three days, um, but the first two days Frankie was not happy, and so the third day. Um, the band stepped up and that the album is one show. So they didn't cherry pick between three shows to get a better, better takes. Hmm. They used the whole show from top to bottom. Impressive and unusual. Yeah. And it, you know, the magic happened that night and, uh, so that that was kind of that was really nice, you know, to have that chemistry. And in those days, the chemistry was really amazing between um everybody was like best friends. We all having a great time. We partying like crazy, you know. Um we were doing radio interviews and record signings every day. And it was just a great time. Did you um, prefer more playing the up-tempo or the down-tempo material, or did it matter to you? It didn't matter at all. Um, I, I just enjoyed it quite a lot. And um, I, I liked bringing um, my flavor to the band because the guys who played before me were a lot different. And um, I brought a little bit of kind of a little jazzy, jazziness, and um, also that like the mellow thing, the kind of wash that I would provide for Roy Ayer's albums that he really liked, then I, I carried that over it to play with Mace to give them a more um, sophisticated sound in many people's opinion than, that, than they had not had before. And with the addition of the other two members from Patty's band, um, it changed the sound of Mace. They had a terrific catalog of songs. I mean, I can think of at least a dozen just great songs that they had at that time. Well, Frankie is a—he's an amazing writer, um, top to bottom, uh, lyrical, conceptual, harmonically, and it all came from his from his head. And so that that was that's like um, the continuation of genuine soul music because May started in 1964 as a duo group wow. and there are some singles out by the, the butlers the butlers is the original maze and bug you may have you may have seen you'll find it on youtube the bug mckinley williams and uh frankie started that in, when they were in high school so the, the original group started in 1964. That's incredible. I, I know that one, of, at least one of the songs on their debut was a remake from previous. I don't know if other ones were too, but yeah. You know, um, it was interesting when I went back and heard 
the original version of one of those songs that ended up being a Maze song. Uh -huh. So you ended up going into the studio with uh, them too and, and doing some studio work. What was that like? That was great. Um, it was a little difficult because um, Ron Smith's wife was from New Orleans and she was catering the sessions and we would eat so much. After dinner, it's hard to get any work done. <laughs> and uh, um, that was David Rubinson's studio, the Automat. And he was friends with uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And so he was bringing these incredible wines that Coppola had not released to the public yet. And so, you know, it was almost too comfortable, but we did some good tracks. That is the, uh, it's the fourth side to the live album is, was done in the studio. And also Frankie wanted me to play organ. So I got to, you know, I'm a B3 guy. I'm, I've been playing B3 since I was 15. And um, so that was a great thing to be able to play organ in the studio because B3 had pretty much gone out of style in, in disco and, you know, the modern R&B. Um, things, but um, I've always really enjoyed playing organ. And um, and I got to do some lightweight arranging, come up with stuff, and pretty much be free to play how I felt. So th that was pretty nice. And uh, the album was, the album did really well. And uh, we went back and we did the We Are One album and I, I got to do some arranging on that too. Because um, we would take Frankie's demos and we'd have to flesh them out because they, they sounded not like they ended up. And so um, that, that was a great experience too. And um, Frankie was looking for something on the drums that he wasn't really getting with Billy. And so he brought in Harvey Mason and James Gadsden. And so we got to record with them. And it ended up that Billy came back and played something that was much better than what Harvey and James were doing. So that was that ended up to be a really cool experience. Philip, one thing I always noticed following me is, is that it seems like they had a lot of personal changes through the years. Why do you think that was? Why, why weren't they successful at keeping a real consistent lineup for many years? That's hard to say because that's Frankie's decision. And um, um, sometimes, you know, um, a member would fall out or or, you know, um, or quit. You know, th sometimes it, there, there is a lot of pressure. Um, and uh, it's different in, in each individual's case. I, I don't know why he broke up the band before Joint Pain. Um, and, uh, so after, uh, after We Are One, um, three of us quit at, at the same time. And um, maybe it had to do with something with the business. And so, um, so I, I left Maze for six years and um, just as soon as I left Mays, Grover Washington snatched me up. Then I played a few years with Grover. Um, Love Grover. It's my, yeah. I, I, play, I, I played saxophone in school, and uh, he was, him and uh, Ryan Laws were my favorites. 
Yeah, Ronnie Laws is great. And Grover was such a warm human being, and we became best friends. We'd hang out all the time. Um, he was the ultimate sweetheart and uh, miss him very much. And, and then after I did that gig, um, I played with Phyllis Hyman a little bit, Roberta Flack. Um, and then I got the call to play with Whitney Houston. And so I did a half a year with, with Whitney. And um, that was great because it was a world tour. And, uh, and you know, I got to spend a lot of time in Japan and uh, Australia and China. Did, did that plant the seeds for your eventual move out there? No. No. It kind of did because I fell in love with Japan. And that same year, I had taken a couple tours with Tara Masahino, the jazz trumpet player. And, um, and I really fell in love with Japan. Um, and that was during the bubble years when there was like money to burn over here. And um, the treatment was so amazing. I'd never been, had that type of VIP top class treatment before. And the people were just so amazing. Um, the lifestyle is amazing in Japan. And that's the reason why I'm still here. It's because I love the lifestyle. What what year did you move out there? 98. 98. Wow, so it's been 21 years already. Yeah. So um coincidentally right right after the second um Hino Teramasa tour um I got um a call from Whitney so I had spent quite a lot of 1988 in Japan. And I made some great friends and I made some connections as to where, you know, we started doing a little business and um, also at that time, um, I got the call to join Jeffrey Osborne's band. So I spent a couple of years with Jeffrey too. And he's one amazing guy. We became best friends as well. I think he's and, one of my very favorite male singers. Yeah, Incredible. he's one of the most unselfish, generous, down-to-earth people you could ever hope to meet. Did, did you play some of the LTD catalog with him also? Yes. That must have been yeah. fun. Yeah, and that was great. Yeah. That was great. And um, I did, I did a, one album with Jeff, and, uh, and then I got the call to go back to Mace. So I went back to Mays and I stayed there for about nine, nine more years before I decided to move to Japan. And what started my move to Japan is um, um, I married a Japanese pop star. Okay. And along with that came um, a position and opportunity to solely be a producer, songwriter, arranger. And so, so I, I left Mays again and came over to Japan. In the first six or seven years, I was in Japan. Um, then um, I was only doing that, writing, arranging, and producing. And did, did, did you miss the other stuff? I did, I did, but um, actually one thing I wanna say is um, America changed over the times, over the course of me um, being the only Chinese guy, Chinese American guy amongst nothing but black people because 90% of the time it was that except for when I played with Cindy Lauper and Martika. And those are white audiences. But the rest of the time, you know, all the audiences were black. And from the, from the very beginning 
up until hip hop and rap took over as the leading music of the world, I felt totally comfortable amongst black people. And maybe around the middle 90s, um, that changed. And I started feeling a little different. And when I would go out amongst, you know, being the only non-black person in, in these huge crowds, um, I started feeling like people wanted to rob me, beat me up, or kill me. And uh, because they didn't know who I was. Because early on, like, at, this is like when maybe, you know, uh, Mary J. Blige and Leah and R. Kelly and uh, start become the superstars. Maze was the only old school people left on the bill. It was all Maxwell, you know, Mary J. Blige, people like that. Involved. And they didn't know who, who Maze was. And so, you know, I, I, go out in the crowd or through the neighborhoods and and people would look at me racially hostile because mm. they they couldn't understand that I was just you know I was I'm a part of it so um and I grew up with black people my my all my elementary junior high and high schools were all 80 80% black. So I always felt comfortable in black culture until after like gangster rap and, you know, all these things started coming out. Then the love kind of disappeared. And I watched the decline of America traveling through all those same towns for 25 years. I've seen the downtowns close. I've seen the economic, seeing the neighborhoods go bad, seeing the economic people lose their jobs. Um, and um, there was never anything good to eat on the road, you know, unless you're in a, a bigger town. You go these, you know, we tour through the South and go all these towns and, and a lot of times the food was just crap. And, you know, I'm a gourmet and, you know, I want to eat good. So have some of that couple of wine. <laughs> yeah, food, the food had a lot to do with me moving here, too. Yeah. It, you know, Tokyo, Tokyo has the most Michelin stars in the world. The food over here is amazing. And the quality of the food that you buy is, is light years ahead of what you buy in America at the supermarket. So that was one thing. And the other thing I had, you know, I, I was tired of riding on the bus, you know, um, doing the same thing again and again. And having that offer, just something inside of me just lit up and said, okay, this is what I, I've, I've always wanted to be a producer. And, um, Coming over here has made me develop a, a whole new skill set. In fact, a whole new series of skill sets that that make me my own boss and make me call my own shots at whatever level that may be. And um, it's tough over here. The music business has bottom has dropped out over here, just like everywhere else. But things exist and um, there's a lot going on. I'm able to interact with people who are half my age, one third of my age, and still be a viable entity in the music business. Whereas a lot of my peers in the States have either gone on to teaching um, or doing something else, taking another form of work because the uh, viability is does not exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Recording business is dead. Um, downloads, uh, CD sales, physical sales are dead. 
streaming has gutted uh, income stream. Um, of course, naturally, you get old and younger people take the place. Younger buyers are looking for something different. And to me, today's music is mostly crap. Yeah, so. <laughs> the argument there. Um, so looking back at all of that, I mean, incredible, incredible, rich history that you've had in um, R&B, funk music, jazz. What, what are one or two of the top memories as you look back, Philip, that you just are like, that is it? Um, let's see. I would think, um, one time we were playing at Madison Square Garden and, um, and I played an organ solo on We Are One. And then, um, I was like, I'm, I'm at home now. This is New York, right? So I, I want to, you know, I want to, uh, this is your boy here. I'm from New York. You know, I'm, I mean, eventually I became a New Yorker. And I started playing and I started hearing a crowd like start rumbling. And then um, the more intense my solo got, the louder the crowd started getting. And then when I finished, I got a standing ovation in Madison Square Garden. So I'll always remember that. Um, other things are having the same kind of individual response. Um, because Roy started this when he would introduce me, everybody in the crowd would go, woo, 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 woo. And they, re they remembered me over the years as I jumped from band to band. And whenever someone would introduce me, the crowd would go woo. And to hear that in the Superdome, one year that the Superdome was like over capacity, there was, there was more than 100,000 people in there. And hearing that and getting that kind of love, that's, that's kind of moments. And uh, there's one other thing I did. Oh, I got a bunch of pictures to show you. Um, yeah, what do you got there? This is, a, this is a project I did. It's called the Project for Tenement Square. And uh, it never came out. But in I gathered together a bunch of people. I wrote a song and made a music video. And so in this picture is um, Ashford and Simpson, Phyllis Hyman, Orange Juice, Joan Kashif, Richie Havens, Grover Washington, um, Tashan, Nikki Richards, the Hooters, and all these people um, came out to, to join my, uh, my recording. And um, after that, Jeffrey Osborne, Phyllis Hyman, Nona Hendricks, um, Michelle Schacht, they all came and contributed to my video. You can find it on YouTube. It's called A Song for Tenement Square. So that was, that was a great moment. Like and, a We Are the World kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, also Mays joined. And so um, we brought a film crew to the Philadelphia Academy of Music, and we recorded Maze's um, uh, part there. And so here's a picture of Maze on stage filming my my song. Um, there's Valerie Simpson. Your hair's a bit longer. Yeah. 
this is me back then. That was two, uh, 1999. And uh, Valerie told me, um, this is a great song. Coming from her, that's a... Uh, She's going to hate me for this. Here's Ashton and Simpson asleep on the bus. What year is that, would you say? 1978. Here's a photo with Patti LaBelle, Narda Michael Walden, Skip Scarborough, and... Uh, Patty LaBelle's band. I was in LA. There's a maze eight by ten. There's another one. Everybody has less hair. Here's an early one. Everybody's got hair. So the one before that was from the uh, early 90s? Yeah. That was from uh, Back to Basics. Yeah, so like 93 or something? Yeah, and the other one is from We Are One. Here's my promo shot with legs. Whose legs are those? To my sister-in-law. <laughs> this is me in uh, 1990. Yeah. Yeah, I got the suit. Did you ever come close to uh, putting out a record under your own name? Yeah, I I keep threatening to. I'm I'm supposed to get some something going on with Red Bull this year, and uh, I may get some sponsorship. This is me in high school. This is a a band called Tamara. This is also, 1974. Also funk, I assume. Yeah, yeah. We were we were copying Tower of Power, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Chicago, Santana. There's a Edwin Bird song with Bernard Purdy, Stevie Wonder, and I'm in the back. Bird song just uh, left us a couple of months ago. Yeah. This is early years with Roy. Uh-huh. Cool shot. There's a shot with Mace. You look like you're having a time time of your life in that one. Yeah, we were rolling right back then. There's Ray Chu. He's uh, he's the uh, um, musical director for Dancing with the Stars and uh, American Idol. The Cindy Lauper tour schedule. Let's see. How'd you feel about playing stuff like that? I mean, that's not very funky. Oh, she's she's she was great, and she was kind of doing a hip hop thing at that time. This is a birthday card from Grover. <laughs> There's an old ticket from the palace. In yeah. 
Let's see, what else do I have? Kashif. Another one that left us too soon. Great talent. Here's an all-star concert I did. The Patrice Russian, Hubert Laws, Grover. I think wow. Jimmy Owens was on that too. Is that in the 80s? Yeah. Um, what else I got? Phyllis Hyman, Cindy Mizell, and Brenda King. That's in the studio. This is from the Las Vegas days with Jeffrey Osborne. Whose baby? <laughs> I forget. That's the Jeffrey Osborne band. That's Johnny McGee from LTD, who stayed with Jeff. That's Grover in the studio. Yeah. Boy, he played the heck out of that soprano sax. That's a Whitney Houston tour book. So when you did that with her, did she only have the first record out? No, this is the second record. I want to dance with somebody. This is a Roy Ayers tour book, 1977, 78. Did you ever encounter a particular song or piece of music, Philip, that just kind of was especially challenging for you to get just right? Oh, all the time. <laughs> um, let's see. Pretty much I would study quite a lot before, you know, before tackling anything. Um, Usually the things that that got me was when if someone would ask me to um, perform a classical piece, and uh, I had to do that with an artist here, very famous artist named Kazuhiko Kato, and um, I was supposed to do duet with a classical violinist, and then um, when he heard me play it. Uh, he got all huffy and stormed off. So um, they hired a real classical pianist to do it. But it, I, I don't read, you know, so I had to work it out. And, uh, and evidently they, they uh, turn their nose up on anybody who doesn't play classical music. So that, that was probably the, the, the one where I felt uh, not too good. A little out of your element on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing is if I have to play um, chromatic harmonica, um, because um, I play it, but I never practice it. I never got good at it. I'm, I can play blues harp, but usually, um, I'll practice it and until I have it down, but when I get on stage, I'll choke <laughs> because it's 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 such a disconnect when you're playing in a mic and you need to hear it back in the mix and you have to remember all those positions. So that's one thing I can I consistently fail at. And one last thing. 
It's a belt buckle. Hey. And this was given to us by Dave Parker, the baseball player, who it's for Pirates for my all-time favorite team. Yeah. And uh, Dave loved us. We go over to his house and we party with him. A wonderful guy. The Cobra. <laughs> that was his nickname. Uh, yep. Wow, Dave. So that's, that's it for the for the stuff. Of course, I have all these. I have all these laminate passes. Wow. And uh, too too numerous to uh, solid as a rock. Everything. I'm going to make a collage out of these. I'll send you the picture, or you can grab the picture that I um, that I took. Yeah. When I lined them all up on the table. So. Yeah. What What are those uh, record awards for? Are those uh, Royers or Mays or? Oh, that's for Mays. Uh, Live in New Orleans, Back to Basics, and Silky Soul. And uh, I have one, a multiple one for We Are One, but that's back in New York. It's too big to ship. Oh, you have store, stuff stored in New York, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. So you can move back at some point. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, um, I don't know. There's so much, there's so much stuff scattered around. It's hard to keep track of. Um, and also, I've I've uh, minimalized. Like I used to have tons and tons of memorabilia, T-shirts, you know, um, tickets that I didn't use, and all, all this stuff that probably would have made good gifts to people. And uh, then, as I scale down, as I move and scale down, I just throw stuff away because yeah, you got it. You know, it's junk, you know. <laughs> So some people like to keep everything, and um, I've even I've even boiled down my keyboards. You know, I I kept I kept the Hammond, I kept the Wurlitzer and the Clav, and there's there's a Rhodes and some Mini Moogs and stuff over here. But um, you know, I had over fifty keyboards, and it's like a, at one point it's like why, you know? We were. Um talking before we came on here, Philip, and I want to just touch a little bit on what you're you're doing today because you know, you're still so active. And as I told you, the band that you have going out there is, you know, very impressive. And the repertoire that you do is very cool, uh, covering just the gamut of, you know, R&B from 60s, 70s, and 80s, and funk, and some jazz stuff, and some eclectic things. Can you talk about that a little bit about what you're doing out there today? Um, I like to I like to keep you know the thread going because I feel like I'm kind of the keeper of the torch, and a, a lot of people aren't interested in playing anything but hits. Um, but I'm a crate digger, and there's so many great songs, and my my singer Ashton Moore. He's younger than my son, but he's an old soul. And, you know, we can do all the Donny Hathaway, Marvin Gaye, um, Leroy Hudson, Earth, Wind & Fire, anything I want to do, we can make it happen. And so I, I like to perform that because I want people to know that this, this body of work exists and, and it's important. Um, in terms of day-to-day -day things I'm involved with in a songwriting team um, which has been successful in Japan and so I've gotten you know uh, last couple albums that I wrote songs on um, were number one on the Oricon charts and I've had like coke commercials anime themes um, uh, TV event themes um, and songs appearing on CDs um, consistently for for since we started the songwriting team. 
10 years ago. And then um, I played with a group called Exile, which is the biggest, one of the biggest groups in Japan. I did a TV show with them that lasted a year. What kind and of style music does Exile play? It's EDM. So like Johnny Dance mix, mixed with soul and uh, um, but the thing about that tour is uh, each show is 50,000 people. Wow. And they take place in the baseball stadiums. So um, I'm not involved with them anymore. Um, I was playing with a Japanese superstar named Toshinobu Kubota. And that lasted um, maybe 13 years. Then he does, uh, he'll do a tour with 50 dates. Um, but I'm getting a little old now. I'm I'm 60, my 62. I'm 62 now, and so the younger generation, even here, is starting to come, and and also the budgets are shrinking, and um, so I I do um, a, a variety of things. Um, I have a lot of events that I curate. Um, and don't, you I, also, don't you also sometimes sit in on some of the U U.S. acts if they come out there? Like, Yes. Um, I did a Tower Power tour, um, which was awesome. They, they made me an honorary lifetime member. Um, so anytime Tower Power plays anywhere I am, um, I have to go on stage and play with them which is a great honor. Uh, one of the very few keyboard players to have played with Tower Power. And um, uh, we become lifetime friends, um, and, which, is, which is very cool. Um, I, I did a tour with Nathan East. I did a tour with Harvey Mason. I did two tours uh, with Roy Ayers using my band. Um, I brought Maze over and joined Maze here in Tokyo. Um, um, I backed up um, a group called Silk. Um, I played with Sheena Easton and Jody Watley as a musical director with the Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, I went to Japan, I mean, I went to Beijing with Jody Watley um and uh i think that's about it i can't i can't so remember you're, anything. you're like a secret weapon out there now <laughs> <laughs> and i also do um festivals uh under my with my band so um i did the kawaguchi jazz festival last year and another thing called the tokyo music cruise which is not a cruise it's a festival and headlining, and I've done festivals in um, in China and um, and around Japan with my band. So the Kawaguchi Jazz Festival was that was great. It was a in a hall, which was very cool to headline, and uh, so you know, good things come. Uh, stay pretty busy so i i can't complain at all and um the lifestyle here is is amazing um this is a new uh, apartment and uh it's fantastic so i'm totally enjoying uh life here and uh the very great friends uh a lot of talented musicians and singers and a lot of activity going on so I'm I'm living a great life. Um, I actually I got to go out there about ten years ago uh, to Tokyo and Osaka and uh, um, one of the other cities. I had a great time. I didn't get to check out any music, unfortunately. But um, who's the guy working with you that sounds so much like Stevie Wonder? Oh, that's Ashton Moore. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, Ashton is from Detroit. Um, he's a, he has a master's degree in music. Um, he was a runner up in the Theolonius Monk 
competition. He has his own CDs out. Um, he has a, a gospel choir. Um, and uh, uh, he does a lot of uh, TV commercials. So I, to me, he's, he's, he's the best singer that I can find here. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy to do Stevie and sound that much like Stevie uh, with the nuances, you know? So impressive. Yeah, it's hard to find, you know, it's very hard to find someone who is, who is your match you know, and also he's very diligent and a, a great study. And uh, we do everything together. And he's, he's one of my best friends. Um, and so I wouldn't be able to do this without him because I'm, uh, to be frankly, I don't like smooth jazz at all. And I was, I'm I was fortunate to escape that wave i left before it became just about the only thing left to do and uh i know a lot of people do it and they're great i mean i love i love gerald albright and you know kenny g's a very good friend of mine and a lot of these guys are great friends of mine and excellent musicians i don't i don't down what they do at all it's just i don't want to do it i i don't like if I do instrumental music, it's probably going to be like, um, like either Herbie Hancockish or uh, or, or um, organ jazz or something of that, like Smith that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's got to have some soul. It got to have some funk. It's got to have some grit, right? And. You know, um, I understand what it, it has become kind of a BGM as a backdrop for maybe restaurants or, you know, long freeway rides or something like that. But um, um, I need to have uh, I need to have a vocalist with me. And um, my other vocalist is named Swinky. And she's from Kenya, and she she'll do anything I ask. Minnie Ripperton, Aretha, Chaka, Mother's Finest. So anything I think of between those two and the rest of my crew, it's um, it's being able to to do what I love, to continue to do what I love. Aside from all the commercial things I do, because I mean you have to live. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of work, but the things I most enjoy is leading my band and um, making the people delighted with soul music. So that's that's pretty much the highlights of continuing to do what I do. The, the crowds that you get that come to those shows, are most of them familiar with the songs or do you help um, introduce them to some of them. Yeah, I do introduce the songs to them. Most most, most of the songs they've never heard before, unless they're kind of DJ record collector types. And, um, and a lot of times I'll make it more commercial to include songs that they know, like Heat Wave or Quincy Jones, or, you know, I'll always include, and I always include some 60s pop, from, you know, some Joe Cocker, stuff like that, Edith James, things that I know they've heard because people like the familiarity, but I also introduce songs that they haven't heard by like, you know, the, the Ohio players or um, what did we do last time? We did quite a few songs by Graham Central Station and they really enjoyed that because it's it's exciting, you know. And uh, I'll pull out some Curtis Mayfield, um, and I also tailor things to like if someone needs a Mardi Gras event, I'll pull out some real New Orleans music, you know. If someone has a has a Brazilian thing, yeah, I can do that too. And uh, 
or you know jazz I, i've actually learned how to play jazz piano which which was one of my weaker points but um it seems to be an asset these days well how recently did you pick that up over the past six years i mean i always played jazz piano um i was really into um, McCoy Tyner and you know I always practiced jazz piano but I never did it as a job I always did it as a hobby something that I enjoyed you know I mean we listened to Coltrane I was a big CTI freak Herbie Hancock you know all the all of his early uh, works from Dolphin Dance to Maiden Voyage. And I mean, I've been playing that stuff since I was a little kid, but now, you know, there, there are jobs, regular jobs that you can do, private shows, private clubs, things like that, that, um, that they want to hear the jazz standards. And so I took it upon myself to study um, jazz piano and, Still, I'm still not great, and I'm a lot different than the other guys. I'm more like Ramsey Lewis and Les McCann, um, Gene Harris. That's more of my forte, and that's what I don't really want to sound like Wynton Kelly or, you know, um, I want to sound like Oscar Peterson because he's he's funky. But the, these kind of guys that all sound alike. I feel that about, not to put anybody down, but when I go out and hear the jazz pianist and, and it's really, it's almost virtuoso, but it's, it's also very, um, it's not outstanding. It doesn't like, Oscar's got that spark. When you hear him, you hear fire, you know? And that's, that's what interests me more than being kind of like harmonic, like very harmonically fluent and, you know, chromaticism and things like that. But I, I find it boring <clears throat> to, to that approach. What do you think of a player like Bob James? I love Bob James. Yeah. Yeah. I, Bob James is a very big influence on me, especially uh, the Power of Soul album by Idris Muhammad and Bob James' first two solo albums are very, very excellent. And the, the work that he did with others at the time on all the CTI albums, um, it's very, very influential, um, very lyrical, melodic, and using the roads um, and his arranging and orchestration is is awesome. Yeah. So when it got more into the smooth thing or the foreplay thing, the whole the whole mood changed because that went with the times. But when he came out, he was very very original, innovative, and um, uh, like unique. So I uh, I. I like to keep that um, in my heart. Those times of when you heard somebody play a Rhodes, it's really, it's really speaking, and it it takes control. So the, that's that's more of my forte is to is to stay in there in that uh, idiom and that that time period. It, it may be that I'm frozen in the 70s, but I, I like it that way. Hey, God bless you for doing it, because, <laughs> I mean, it, it touches me. It always touches me. It never gets old. And because there's so much less of it today, I think it's just that much more special. So, Yeah, and, um, you know, I, 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 I just built this room, and... Um, so when I'm done with it, I, I have no excuse not to write anymore. I, all those excuses, there's some, you know, every day the phone rings and somebody wants something more. And of course, you know, we do need money to, uh, to 
continue to, to pay our, our uh, support our lifestyle. And so, uh, but I'm very, very fortunate that I have never done anything except play music. And I've never had to take a day job or a teaching job. I teach privately, but uh, I'm not interested in teaching at a school or a university. Um, that makes that that is uh, entering the workforce, and you gotta wake up too early. <laughs> As you know, I I can't get up before. Yeah, yeah. no, I've learned that. Um, <laughs> um, no, but it's great too that you're still uh, you know kind of learning. You know, you're still picking up jazz piano, and you know, you mentioned you know being 62, but you know what? It's still a learning experience of the musical journey, right? Of course, and um, I never received any formal training besides um, I took a year of music theory in college and then I got pulled away to New York. I would have loved to, um, to go through college and study um, um, classical uh, music theory because my teacher was amazing and seeing my teacher play classical music made me want to do it. She reminded me of Ahmad Jamal on Beethoven. That's how much fire she had. But unfortunately, I didn't get that, that formal training. Um, I did teach myself about harmony and also I can transcribe very quickly. I can write out things for people exactly what what I need them to play, but um, the reading thing um, has has always been um, um, lacking. So some people say that's good because you're not copying any everything I've done, and um, I think I have my own style, and so everything I've done is. Um, is a culmination of things I've absorbed by listening to the people that I love. And a lot of those people are, are soul musicians. So um, I think having that approach, and I also like to remain being different, even though if, if um, I'm not as, you know, I'm, I'm not the guy who plays giant steps or Cherokee, you know, or plays rhythm changes at 100 miles an hour, but you no, know, let the other guys do that and I'll, I'll stay in my lane. I think um, that's a great message for musicians everywhere to be true to themselves. You know, whatever you do, whatever style, you know, be, be true to your yourself and that's part of the reason I named this show Truth and Rhythm, you know, is, is finding the truth in the music and finding the truth in yourself in creating that music. Well, thanks very much for having me. And um, I'm glad we finally got around to, to, to getting this done. And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, it, it looks like you really uh, are very passionate about what you do. And that's very cool. Well, thank you for coming on. I, I much appreciate you hanging in there. We had some technical challenges and all that, but uh, hey, modern technology, this is amazing that we're doing this uh, from two sides of the world. So that's fantastic. Um, continued success and, you know, keep holding the line, you know, for, for quality music and spreading, um, you know, that musical joy to all those people out there. If anybody happens to find themselves in your neck of the woods, What's the name of the venues that they could find you at? Um, Blues Alley, Japan, and Mobius, which is spelled Mobius. Um, I purposely only play it at Mobius um, because I want to support the owner. But actually, he just retired. But I still continue to play there because it's very... Uh, centrally located to Shinjuku, and um, and the people are used to seeing me there, so they pack it every time. 
and which feels great. Uh, there's a lot of other places to play around. Um, I'm going to start trying different places, but the, the best thing is just to spy on my Facebook page. And there, I'm always like shamelessly advertising where I'm going to be playing. Philip, been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time out. It's my pleasure and continue to spread the message. Hey, we're back. You know, I still get goosebumps thinking about that first experience that he shared with Roy Ayers in Chicago. Wow, it was like a dream. It sounded like a dream. So many other great stories as well. And I was saddened to hear how he became, uh, he came to feel ostracized in America in the 1990s. But so glad he's continuing to thrive and hold on to his musical beliefs and keep it real, real soulful and funky that is. A final thanks goes out to Mr. Philip Wu, a true funk soldier and one badass keyboard player. Also sincere thank you as always to you, the viewers, for continued interest and support. Again, I told you I'd remind you, subscribe if you haven't already done so. Sign up to the uh, Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. And if you have done so, tell friends, tell family. We need that support. Show these great funk, jazz, and soul artists that you appreciate the work that they did and the impact they've had on your lives. Also, I want to hear from you. Email me at scottg at funkandstuff.net. Let me know what you like about the show, who else you might want to see, what's going on in your brain, musically speaking. Share it with me. I'll answer you, I promise. And with that, as always, Scott Tetrigia Skolfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.